This episode goes in conjunction with our episode from last week. Our opening story was about a fictional couple named Paige and William, told from William's perspective. This time, we will look at Paige's perspective. I encourage you to listen to both, though you can do so in any order. Let's dive in. Paige sat down at dinner with her husband, William, on a quiet evening. She knows that he's been stressed at work for quite some time now, so she decided to take care of dinner on her own and make chicken piccata, his favorite, even though she'd had a long day too. Thanks for cooking tonight, he tells her. She can tell that he's already a bit off and was hoping for some connecting time. That's okay, she thinks. He's not totally here for it tonight. Maybe we can make some plans for the weekend. I thought it would be fun to take the kids out for a hike this weekend, she says, taking a risk. Sure, sounds fun, he says unconvincingly. Paige can tell he doesn't want to go on the hike. She takes a brief inhale and tries to let him off the hook. We don't have to go if you don't want to, she says. No, I want to go, he says, and she can tell he's lying through his teeth. This is exactly what happened last time when we tried to go. He just walked in the back and sulked the entire time. I'm an idiot for even bringing this up, she thinks. Okay, great, Paige says, trying to move on, but also to let him know that she needs more from him. I said I would go, William says, finally showing a sign of life. Yeah, but you don't want to go, Paige retorts back. She tries to hold back the outburst that's coming but feels too hurt, too missed, and too disconnected. I just want to have a fun day with my husband and my kids, and I don't understand what's so freaking hard about that. As it leaves her lips, she's already regretting it. But she feels too hurt to take it back. Plus, she can tell, he's already gone. All right, we're probably familiar with the story to some degree. Maybe not the exact content, but at least the process with it. But here's the question. Are you a William or are you a Paige? Welcome to Relatable, a Thrive Therapy podcast. My name is Lauren Mokeri, and I am joined by my friends and co-hosts, Coulter Bloxham and Kayla Gensler. We are three licensed professional counselors running a therapy community in Phoenix, Arizona called Thrive. We offer individual therapy, have tons of group therapy options, workshops, intensives, and so much more. And this podcast is just an extension of all of that, where we go through topics on how to relate better to others, how to relate better to yourself, better to your emotions, experiences, and so on. And our topic for today is on what it's like to be a pursuer in contrast to a withdrawer. So if you tuned in for last week's episode, we focused on what it means to be a withdrawer. We defined these two terms, and today we're looking at the other side of the coin. And before we jump in, I'm just noticing your face, Kayla. It looks like you were feeling a little bit triggered listening to that vignette. Kayla's doing regulatory breaths right now. (laughs) She's like tense in her body. (laughs) Oh, William. (laughs) William's short responses just really get me going. Sure. I'll yeah. go on a hike. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're just, I can just feel in my body like, no, you don't want to go. And just kind of hearing that part where she, Paige says something like, um, you know, the last time he was there, he was like essentially like a bump on a log. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I know those feels, Paige. <laughs> I know those feels. Yeah, she's your girl. You relate. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's relatable. Uh, super yeah. relatable. Paige is my girl, too. I like this is, I'm, I'm. <laughs> relating over here as well. There's, I mean, I think people are beginning to understand by now that most of these stories are kind of influenced by real life culture experiences. (laughs) (laughs) Well, really the whole three of us, all of our spousal experiences. (laughs) Yeah. Which, okay. This is time for a confession. So Kayla, Lauren, and I Obviously, we have like a group chat going where we talk about different things Thrive related and and also what we want to talk about on the podcast and then also just kind of like bantering back and forth a little bit. And uh, I noticed there was a number of stories that were coming back and forth between the three of us about our withdrawer spouses. And so I changed the name of the group text to Withdrawer Spouse Support. <laughs> um, Which did make Kayla and I laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It felt it felt very healthy and cathartic at the time, <laughs> like this is needed. But now, after listening to the last episode, and then, well, mostly us talking about what we talk want to talk about on this episode for pursuers, I felt really guilty about naming the 
text thread that because one of the things we'll get into is like the self-righteousness of pursuers of like, no, I'm right. You know, Paige is right. She wants to do something fun. Like I'm the one that wants to do something fun and I'm the one that wants connection and he just wants to sit over there and think about his feelings. And I felt so bad as you two were just like, we were talking on Marco Polo and you two were just like really laying into that about how that is not true. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like, you're describing (laughs) me. I feel so called out. Yeah. I mean, that's neither side is, you know, right. And it's important just to remember that all of this comes from a place of self-protection. We talked about that last time that we recorded. And it's also just, it's still important to reiterate that, that it's self-protection that we're talking about. And and it comes in response to a threat to connection. And so these are not our best selves. Um, when all of us enter either pursuer withdrawal mode, it's because we're feeling anxious and and worried about the disconnection in the relationship. And then we behave in ways that are often childish. Yeah. And I think I said this in the last episode, but you know, if you haven't listened to the right over relational episode, that thread kind of plays through everything that we talk about with pursuers and withdrawers. And I was actually noticing listening to the vignette Today, I did really feel a lot of resonance in my body with Paige, but it was interesting because last week I felt a lot of resonance in my body with William. Like, yeah, that's so frustrating to like come home and kind of be tired and feel like, oh, I don't want to make things worse. And so I think that's something too where we get so stuck and like maybe we resonate with one experience over the other and then just start thinking like, well, that's obviously the right one. And the reality is we feel something a little bit different when we can kind of understand more about what's going on underneath for both sides. Well, I think you're you're displaying some good individuation there. And that's kind of the goal is that we can like understand both sides of what is happening and not be so attached to our viewpoint. And I know that we when we take those more vulnerable risks and kind of talk about what we're experiencing and give our partner a chance to be more vulnerable, it usually does lead to some empathy. It mm-hmm. does lead to some place of like, yeah. oh, okay, like I understand a little bit more what's going on for you. Totally. So last week, Kayla, you gave us kind of an overview of what it means to be a pursuer versus a withdrawer. Um, And just in case anybody is just tuning in with this episode or needs a little bit of a refresher, can you just give us a little review? What do these terms mean? Yeah. So as I said just a minute ago, this is based on our attachment system, which is a system that's programmed for connection. And essentially, it's going to start to fire these protective responses when I feel like I can't access my partner or, you know, I'm feeling inadequate, et cetera. Those sorts of feelings come online. For the withdrawal, what we talked about last week is there is going to be a more kind of like lower energy response when there's a threat of disconnection. And so they are more focused on, you know, what did I do wrong? I don't know how to say this right. I can never get it right. I'm going to, I'm going to hurt my partner. And they're going to have responses that are going to be more like withdraw, shut down, avoid, pulling away, defense, those sorts of things on the lower edge of, you know, the window of tolerance, if you're familiar with that. On the flip side of that, today we're going to talk about pursuers. And they are on the higher energy side of things. And so they will have more thoughts around, you know, why is my partner not doing the things that I need? They're going to kind of be more view of other, what's going wrong in this relationship. They're very hypervigilant to disconnection and they're always paying attention to that. And so there's a fear of abandonment, a fear of being alone, not being good enough or valued, not feeling understood. And they're going to be using moves that are more like blame, criticism, protest, which is sort of like yelling or name calling, stomping away, those those sorts of things. Yeah, I kind of picture that disconnection and and the fear of disconnection is being like having a marble jar and every time there's like some little ripple in the relationship, like we throw another marble jar or another marble in the jar of this relationship might end like that hypervigilance of like, Oh, what was that one? What was that one? Like he, okay. He just said a two word answer. So what does that one mean? Oh, his inflection sounds a little bit off. Okay. We'll throw another one in. Yeah. And, And they're all, you know, it's, 
again, it's both sides are trying to bring the relationship back online. The strategies are just different, right? The withdrawer knows that conflict doesn't work, so they're going to try to pull us out, where the pursuer knows that connection does work, so they're trying to force us in. Um, and they're trying to push and, you know, get things back online. And both sides, again, are fighting for the relationship just in very different ways. Hearing you say that, Kayla, too, makes me think about even that piece Coulter was naming before, like how we have named the self-righteousness that can come up about pursuers because there's this sense that, like, I'm the one pursuing connection and connection is obviously a good thing. Mm-hmm. And connection is a good thing. Yes. but true connection, right? Mm -hmm. Compassionate connection, connection where we're actually understanding each other. And the way that we go after connection when we're in a pursuer move is not actually in service of connection. It's not going to feel connecting. Is it more in service of control? Yes, I would say I was so. trying to, as you were talking about that, I'm trying to think of like, okay, so it's not true connection. So what is it then? And so is it like, is it control connection? Yeah, I think so. Do you, do you agree with that, Kayla? Yeah, I would say that that feels accurate. And, you know, there's just a lot more awareness of what their needs are for pursuers. So like, I know all the things that I need to make me feel loved. And I want to tell you all the things and I want to teach you all the things all the time. Um, and that can be beneficial, but it also can feel really overwhelming and like a lot of pressure if you're a withdrawer who doesn't typically have as much access to understanding what you need. So it feels really disorganized and overwhelming often. Yeah. And that's where, you know, looking back at the withdrawer strategies that we talked about last week, it's still in service of protecting the connection, even though it doesn't look like it. it you know, on the surface, it's like, oh, you're withdrawing from connection or it looks very just self-focused and self-serving. But the reality is that pursuer moves are also very self-serving um, because we're trying to control the connection in a way that we don't have to sit with some of the vulnerability of holding space for the fact that our partner is different from us and that we need to actually talk about those differences and negotiate some of the the ways that we meet needs for each other. Yeah. I find that my pursuers are just a, just a lot more attuned to the fact that, like I said earlier, that there's disconnection and they're a lot more likely to enter their stress response when they notice that something is off. And I just want to support my pursuers out there because that makes sense, right? For all my friends in the room, as well as all the friends that are listening that are kind of feeling like, okay, I might fit in more of this pursuer category. It makes sense that your system gets dysregulated when there's disconnection with your partner, because that is what that your attachment system is designed to do, to pay attention to that. And if you've had a lifetime of not feeling connected or loved or not having certainty that you're valued and that your needs are going to be met, that system is really easily going to be triggered. And again, my pursuers, they just want to let their partner know, but I think we'll talk a little bit more about this. It's the way that they let their partner know that really creates this negative cycle. So from William's perspective in the last episode, he is thinking like, I don't even have space to be able to make a decision right now. And a lot of times what happens is like two days later, that person is like, oh yeah, that does sound like a good idea. That does sound like something that's fun. But Paige hears that as a, and thinks, I need to tell him right now that I need this. And maybe she can still tell him that, but maybe just wait two days because maybe he's going to come back around in two days. So it's like the speed, like I have a need. It's a good need. I want connection with my family. I want to go do something fun and leisurely and active at the same time, all really good needs. And then some fear of, I may not get that need met. And I can't sit with the uncertainty of that for more than five minutes. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's a huge part of it as well. Like that's where we start reaching for the control of, Mm -hmm. I can't sit with that uncertainty. And so let me pull this move of like, okay, let's plan this thing right now, but we haven't slowed down enough to actually check in with our partner. What are you feeling? Are you overwhelmed right now? (laughs) Like it is Is this this the space, right? Uh for, For you to be able to plan something in the future. Yeah. And again, I'm just, I'm feeling so protective of my 
pursuers because what I want everybody to hear, especially any withdrawers out there, is that the pursuer often will negotiate with themselves several, several times. Even within that five minutes that you're referencing, Coulter, they're in their head saying, like, don't say it right now. Don't say it right now. Wait a little bit. You know that they just got home. And then it the the overwhelm builds. And then that sort of, you know, like pressure to say it now. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Kayla, last week you you gave us a little bit of background about like what determines whether our system trends more towards being a pursuer or a withdrawer. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can kind of go back one more time and really focusing on the pursuer end, like what lends to the development of becoming a pursuer? Yeah, the the ways or the factors that influence it are the same, but the meaning making or like the learned behavior is a little different. So one of the first places we talked about was neglect, right? And, and neglect just means absence of. It doesn't necessarily mean that you were you went without food or water or shelter. Oftentimes when we're talking from an attachment perspective about neglect, what we're talking about is that my family didn't talk about emotions or didn't make me feel safe when I had emotional responses. Um, There was a lack of communication. So the absence of, and in that absence of having a a big emotional response and then not having a consistent response from my caregiver, I didn't really learn then how to regulate my own nervous system, right? So if I'm not watching my parent regulate their emotions well, or I'm having big emotions and they're you know, they're being shut down or, you know, hey, go in your room and, and you know, you're grounded or whatever it is because I'm crying or yelling about something, then I'm really not learning those skills to regulate my nervous system. And so they just continue to have these big emotional outbursts without the tools to regulate them. So I hear you talking about really the relationship to being able to get our needs for connection met, which you, like you said, was similar with withdrawers. You know, looking back at our attachment history, what were the rules of our system? And if it wasn't being modeled for us that we can get connection easily um, or just for like showing up as our authentic selves or there was punishment or turning away from connection, then it's going to result in these different strategies. There's something that you say all of the time kind of in relationship to this need for connection that highlights the difference between withdrawers and pursuers. And I don't want to take a shot at it and not word it as well as I know that you will. So I'm going to ask you to remind me what that saying is. Are you, do you mean like turn up versus turn up? Yeah. Yes, yes. So um, in that neglect example, our withdrawers learn nobody's going to help me with this. So I just have to turn off my emotions. I just learn how to store them and not feel this anymore. Whereas the pursuers are are essentially learning to turn up their emotions. They're not listening to me. They're not helping me at this level. And I have to keep raising the volume to get my needs met. I'm going to just keep crying or yelling louder because I know that I really need this, but nobody's paying attention to me. So it's like the same origin, really. So it's like the same origin, really. But then I just really like that. Like one side is hearing, okay, I can't get my needs met. I need to turn them down. And the other side is hearing, I can't get my needs met. I need to turn them up. I need to get louder. Right. And so we can have some empathy depending on what, or regardless rather of what side we're on, because it is a similar origin. It's just a different way that I learned how to get my needs met or to deal with emotions that I didn't know how to feel. And from a trauma-informed perspective, it's really important that we understand we don't consciously choose which way we go. Yes, good, Lauren. And I hear couples argue all the time about how the other partner should just use the same strategy that they use. Like, I'm feeling my emotions and you need to Mm -hmm. be feeling your emotions Mm -hmm. too. Or just, I'm not feeling my emotions, so just don't feel that. Just don't worry about that. Yeah, why do you need to feel that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and really what's happening is when we start to feel this overwhelm beyond our capacity to cope, beyond our capacity to know what skills do I reach for that help me feel assured that I really can still get my needs met here – when we hit the ceiling, basically, of that threshold, our front brain, which is what we need access to to really use a lot of logic and strategy and organization, it really starts to go offline right. and the brain just defaults yes. to whatever protective strategy worked worked yeah, exactly. in childhood. And so we're not choosing to turn off our That's emotions. Right. We're not choosing to turn them up. That is just happening. Yes. Well, and when that, when that system that we're talking about has been programmed in that way for so many 
many years to then just expect that I can just tell you to do it different and you're going to, or that you even go to therapy for six months or a year and you're going to do it differently. That's really unfair because it's been years and years and years of programming and that the nervous system just knows that this is the way to, to do things to get my needs met. Well, and when you think about it that way too, it kind of puts some of the onus back on you just in whatever side that you're on. That's like, I also have to reinforce this person when they make the opposite move. And we can sometimes punish the other person when they do do the thing that we want them to do, which mm-hmm, is like actually yes. vocalizing something. Yes. Um, and so that's part of it too. It's not just like the six months or a year that they do in therapy. It's also like every time that your partner, whether you're a pursuer or withdrawer, every time your partner of the opposite does the thing that you want, you have an opportunity to reinforce that behavior and to reward that behavior, even if it's hard sometimes, even if it's, you know, him saying, gosh, you know that like, I I hear you, you want to go on a hike, but like, I just don't even have capacity to make that decision right now. That's what she wants. She wants him to say Mm -hmm. what he is actually thinking, but that could still be hurtful. It could still not get Mm -hmm. the need met. Which is the fear for him, right? If I say what I'm actually thinking, if I say like, man, I'm just tapped out right now and I can't even think about this weekend. Right. She's going to go into logic and control of like, well, what do you mean you can't think about this weekend? Like, you'll be fine by then. Or that's so unreasonable that you can't ever plan ahead. Like, it's going to potentially bring conflict. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, in a, in a minute, we'll talk a little bit more about strategies in that realm, because I think that is really helpful to start to think about like, well, how the heck do we do this differently? But I did want to just go back for a second, because there's a couple other origins that I want to hit before we move forward. So we talked about the neglect uh, as one of the origins. Um, inconsistency is very similar to neglect, but it is a little different, right? So sometimes my caregiver might respond to me in ways that really help me. And sometimes they don't respond, right? Maybe, and this might be for like very, you know, genuine reasons, right? Maybe my caregiver works a lot, so they're not present. We talked about that a little bit last time, or maybe they're reading a parenting book or watching a parenting course that's telling them conflicting things to what they're currently doing. And so they're trying these new skills and ultimately that's leaving me feeling dysregulated and like I can't count on them and I can't trust what response I'm going to get. Regardless of the reason though, when there's inconsistencies there, that is another reason that pursuers might learn to turn their emotions up and yell louder. It makes me think about, I mean, you're describing intermittent reinforcement, right? right? Which is how slot machines work, how gambling works. Shout out to Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, it's like we we know this about how the human brain works, that when there's intermittent reinforcement of some kind of reward, even though we know that there's going to be a lot of misses, a lot of times that I pursue that connection and I'm not going to get it, just for the chance that I know I'm going to get it sometimes, my brain is going to learn keep pursuing. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And so it it almost like turns that mo- that move or that tool like as like a oh, I must use this more often now in in fact. And so it's sometimes it works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The last place is just modeling, right? So if I had caregivers who were very dysregulated often or even just culturally um, spoke louder, again, here's my option to... Kayla's from New York. (laughs) 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 Yes. And so I talk louder, faster, and yell more often. And that is part of my programming, right? So we want to just be able to to recognize that if we had caregivers who had more dysregulation in their emotions... That's sometimes what we learned. Mm-hmm. So that would be learning the pursuer tendencies. That Correct. makes me think like, is everybody in Italy a pursuer? <laughs> like I went to Italy and I, I love this, by the way. My wife is Italian. I, I love Italian people. But like everyone that I see talking to each other, it looks like they're like yelling every uh-huh. single conversation they're having. And they're just talking about what they want to order, but it's like yeah. so passionate. Uh-huh. Yeah. When I was 17, I went on a family vacation with my best friend's family and they were Italian and from New York. So mm, got my people. Yep. Got yeah, both there of we those. Go. Um, and I remember I spent a week with them in this like vacation house and yeah, just talking about what they were going to do for dinner. Everything felt like yelling. My family's from the Midwest. So that's just like not how I've seen communication done. And I remember asking my friend, like, are you okay? Like, is everything okay? And she was like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this is normal. We love what each other. What are you talking other. about? We're just, we're just 
making plans for dinner versus your family is like, oh, whatever you want. Yeah, yeah my, my system was so stressed <laughs> you know, for a week. <laughs> Yeah. So those kind of three areas are really what I think of when it comes to origins, whether it was absence of, so the neglect, the inconsistency or intermittent reinforcement, and then what was modeled for me. Mm -hmm. So now I'm imagining that we've got a pursuer sitting here and we're interviewing them for a job, for a relationship where we say like, all right, what are some of your greatest strengths? What are some of your greatest weaknesses? They're like, I love too hard. That's like the Michael Scott answer. <laughs> like, well, what are your strengths? My weaknesses are my strengths. Um, and one of the strengths of the pursuer is that they won't let things just get swept under the rug. And that's always their fears. Like, we're never going to talk about this. Yes. And so that is a strength. It's like, hey, this is going on. This is something that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And we need to talk about that. That is a strength of the pursuer. Yes. That really is hugely important because conflict can be so hard to circle back to, especially when the dust settles a little bit and it feels like, okay, we could just leave this under the rug and we could just move on business as usual and why rock the boat when the waters have kind of smoothed out. But if we keep leaving things under the rug, it's like that bump gets so high, we're inevitably going to trip on it anyway. So that is an amazing strength to have a partner in the relationship who can kind of lean into that discomfort of like, we do need to clean this up. Right. Right. And even if it's after we've taken a break or it's been a few days, there is a higher likelihood that the pursuer is going to bring that back around again. And so good work, pursuers, for bringing things <laughs> up, talking about the hard things. Another strength that I think about and, you know, obviously can come out sideways sometimes, but there is access to understanding what they need, that there is a lot more um, time and attention devoted to pay, to really learning the things that they need and probably getting really creative with all the various ways that their needs can be met. And so I do see that as a strength of the pursuers is to spend some time identifying and communicating what they need. I think too, even just looking at that piece through a relational lens, there's also a strength that they can be a little bit more attuned to their partner sometimes. And when we're in our window to be able to like take some curious guesses, right? Like if, if I have a withdrawer partner who's not as practiced or even just like doesn't have as much of an aptitude to name their emotions. As a pursuer, I can be a little bit more attuned maybe and take some guesses of like, hey, it looks like you're feeling really stressed right now. It looks like you're feeling kind of irritated. What's going on here? And if we're in a safe place together, that can actually be really helpful versus putting the full onus on like, you need to know what you're feeling. You tell me what you're feeling. Like <laughs> I can help with that actually. Yeah. It reminds me of like a similar thing that I always point out that I, I love about the pursuer, which is their investment in understanding their partner. Mm -hmm. There is such a desire to know their partner's inner world and to understand, you know, what they need and push them into activities or interests, even if it's not, you know, relational, like individual, to try to push and encourage their partner to do those things that matter and to also talk to them and teach them about the things that matter. Mm -hmm. I remember my partner and I did a little bit of um, couples counseling leading up to our wedding. And the counselor who we saw was somebody who knew me very well in a counseling context and had made this reflection to my partner. We were kind of talking about some of this like pursuer withdrawer dynamic. And the counselor basically was like, you know, you have chosen a partner who is constantly going to be wanting to improve your relationship and constantly wanting to improve herself. And she is not going to let things go. Like you need to know that that's what you've chosen here. Mm -hmm. And that actually felt really meaningful to for me to like hear that reflection because it did really feel like in a strengths-based way of like, oh, it's okay that this is what it's like to be me. Yeah. And not every person needs to be that way or is going to be that way. But to just be able to look at like, this is who you've chosen to be in relationship with. Like, this is so important to me to continuously be looking and understanding and growing. And how I'm going to, I'm going to do that for us as well. How did he receive that? Really beautifully, actually. He, I think he was able to really acknowledge like, yeah, that's one of the things I really admire about Lauren. That's one of the things that I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think the last thing that comes to mind, at least for me, is this 
energy difference, right? When we talked about withdrawers, we said that the strength of the withdrawer is to kind of like tell us like, hey, we're doing too much. Like we need some downtime. We need some time at home. We need to rest. Where if we think about from an energetic place, the pursuer on the flip side is going to get us going a little bit more. They're going to get us into counseling probably. They're going to get us, you know, doing things out on a hike or, right? There's just an energy difference. Exactly. get some action going. I always assume when someone reaches out for couples counseling that the email I'm getting is from the pursuer. (laughs) I just want to be like, hi, pursuer. The the times that it's from the withdrawer are when the pursuer has made that like a condition of like, you you have to seek out the counseling. You will seek this out. And they're like, hi, I was told that I have to send this email. I don't know why I'm calling you. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently my relationship is not good, but I think it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on? Not really sure. Everything's good. Okay. So you got told. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know that their partner's just like in the room with them. You're like, can you just put me on speaker? Like, I know that Are you recording this I call? I know that they're listening. They're like, hi, I'm here now too. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, sh- oh, you just happen to be available. Shocking. <laughs> oh my gosh, we love you all. <laughs> So let's switch over to talking about some of the things that the pursuer maybe needs to focus on and grow in. What comes up for you guys? I I want to circle back actually to this like righteous piece because I think that mm. I so I'm going to just preface I identify this piece within myself and so sometimes I feel a little extra activated by it when I see it come up in my pursuers that I'm working with. This sense that because there's a strength of being very introspective or wanting to do so much work, that sometimes we can really feel like I am doing all the right things. Like I'm doing all the right things. I'm doing the work. I'm the one in action. I'm going to therapy. I'm reading all of these books. I can name my emotions and I can name my needs and I can tell you what they are. I have a whole instruction manual written out. And if you would just read it, how hard <laughs> (laughs) hard could it be to follow the instructions? (laughs) You know, I relate to that. (laughs) And at the same time, it's so ironic because the piece that's being completely missed there from an insight perspective is when we're even just delivering that sentiment in that way, it feels so condescending. Yeah. It's so disconnecting. (laughs) I'm just thinking of someone like no one's going to meet their friend for a drink and like, oh my gosh, I love it. She gave me this list of things I can do to love her. It's it's in this book that's bound and everything. Like yep. that just feels really controlling. It does feel controlling. And it carries this sense of better than. Yes. Right. I'm yes. I'm really kind of then coming from this place of I am better than you. And I just need you to get it together so that you can join me on my level. And that is why I felt the guilt over our withdrawer spousal support. I mean, we have joked before that our spouses all need a support group for dealing with us as well. That's why I said when Coulter was like, oh, I feel so guilty now. And I was like, I don't really feel guilty, but I think it's because I would totally support my partner having a pursuer spouse (laughs) support group. (laughs) Yeah, totally. They they need that. Yes. But the joke that I made was that none of them would initiate the text threads. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That's very true. And gosh, Lauren, as you were naming all of those self-righteous tendencies, I'm like, I still do this so often. It is such a hard thing to condition out of yourself, you know, and it's it's coming from a really invulnerable place, quite honestly, right? It's it's coming from a place of like, I can't look at the faults that I bring to the relationship. I'm just constantly focused outside, external focus. Well, and again, it's kind of this like I- irony piece because one of the strategies of the pursuer to avoid vulnerability is to try to work on all of their own faults, right? So if I'm working on all of my own faults and I'm like, I'm learning how to communicate better and I'm learning how to do boundaries and I'm learning how to express my needs, there can be this illusory sense that like I'm not bringing a lot of faults to the table. It's you. You're bringing all of the faults. When in reality, like this is not about performance. It's not about what we're doing. It's about how much can I hold space for the vulnerability that you and I are different, that we're going to feel different things and need different things. And that's going to be hard. Yeah. I kind of want to couple that with another weakness, just like the lack of insight and not being able to see their strategies as ineffective. And I'm probably a little bit late to the game in bringing this up, but as we've been talking about like pursuer moves, I think just some of the language in attachment theory doesn't 
lend itself quite as well because we can say like someone's withdrawing and we recognize that as like, oh, like they withdrew. Like that's, you know, a, a, a bad thing. But then if we say like, oh, they're pursuing, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. So mm-hmm. that's why we use that language mm-hmm. of pursuer moves. Yeah. And mm-hmm. usually recognizing that those are ineffective right. strategies. They just don't hit quite the same way that withdrawing does. Yeah. And it's, it is like such a, an interesting concept because we, as the pursuer, we can see those withdrawal moves as like non-relational, right? When you pull away, you're selfish. You're fo- focused on yourself and what you think and what you feel. And really, the pursuer's moves are they can they can appear really dangerous and threatening. I mean, like what you're talking about right now, culture. I mean, the term pursuer does feel nice, but when you really look at the moves, the criticism, the contempt, the demands, the yelling, right? Those things are really scary. Yeah, they the can withdrawer. be abusive. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And you know, I'm just gonna say this again. We say it on both sides, but it's like the compassion that I still can feel for knowing the hurt that's underneath that. You know, like I've been going for such a long time without getting these needs met. I've tried so many things before getting to this escalated place to try to get these needs met. And so then we're at this kind of place of desperation where it's like, I've already tried everything that was in my backpack. And now I'm reaching for these moves that don't feel great, but it almost feels like I'm justified in being here because nothing else worked. Well, and that's why I told the story the way that I did, because I think of how fights are often displayed on TV or in movies. Like everyone's just like screaming at each other. Like I think most fights don't really usually reach that level. Obviously they do, they do sometimes, but I was going to say, check with Kayla. She (laughs) sees a lot of couples in her office and then she might disagree. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say half. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking of like, if you, you know, the movie Marriage Story, it's like Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson have this like big blowout where he like punches the wall and he's just like screaming. Like I feel it's it's more often that our fights are like these little moments of disconnection of like, oh, are you sure you, you want to go on the hike? Like, yeah, I want to go. Like, um, okay. Like there's some tension starting to build. But then you, you hear in her inner monologue that she's like not wanting to say something, let it go, can't let it go. And it comes back to this place of like, I'm too hurt and I feel like my needs are not met enough. Mm-hmm. So I can't take it back. Like I, I just feel too hurt. And so, yeah, I, I just want to underline that as well. Mm-hmm. The empathy to feel for the pursuer that there's a lot of hurt there. Yeah. yeah. I did love that line in the vignette of like her kind of inner dialogue of, I you know, I want to take it back, but I'm too hurt and I just can't. Because there is something internally in us from this protective stance that's it's valid you know there's something where it's like if I let this go if I take it back it feels like I'm betraying my own self like I'm betraying my needs for connection and feeling seen and respected and so that can make it really tricky when we've been stuck in this dance for a long time right I think in this area of lack of awareness So we're talking right now about the lack of awareness of how we come across and how we communicate and what our moves actually feel like. Um, But there's also a lack of awareness of vulnerability and the lack of connection to primary emotions that we see with our pursuers that I think is worth mentioning. So there's there are two sets of emotional experiences. Secondary emotions are more reactive emotions. So those would be things like shame or anger, frustration, annoyance. Those are emotions that are in response to something else that maybe triggered me. Like my partner did something and so now I'm annoyed or angry. My partner did something and so now I'm um, experiencing that as shame. Something's wrong with me, where primary emotions are softer and more kind of to the core of us, right? So that would be something like lonely, sadness, um, guilt, right? Those are emotions that we're wanting when we choose to try to do the vulnerable thing and share at that level. That is, those are the emotions that we want to share. And I find that the pursuer has a lot more trouble connecting and expressing those ones. I want to just... Um word it another way for for those who have maybe never heard that terminology of secondary versus primary emotions because it can be really hard to learn to track that. I always think of secondary emotions as like I'm feeling this emotion because I don't want to feel another emotion. 
Right. Rather than like, if I'm feeling angry in traffic because I'm truly just frustrated that I'm trying to get somewhere on time and I'm being slowed down or I value following the rules and someone's not following the rules, like anger can still be a primary emotion, but it's when I feel angry because underneath that, I actually feel scared and I'm angry because I don't want to feel scared. And I feel more, yeah, I feel more connected to power when I'm in an anger-based energy. Same with shame. Like we call that a secondary emotion because it's like, shame is kind of this giving up. It's this like, okay, I can't be effective and that feels really helpless. And so then I just go to this place that like, it's just about me. I'm flawed. Right. I'm flawed versus acknowledging like it feels really vulnerable to be helpless. Yes. So I think that that can be a hard concept to wrap our minds around, but circling back to the point you're making here about pursuers, I would say I see that as well very consistently that it's not that we aren't in touch with our emotions. It's just that we might not be as in touch with the primary emotions. Right. Um, the more vulnerable The ones. more vulnerable The ones. harder ones to talk about. Yeah. Because I, I would say I see my pursuers a lot telling me like, I expressed my emotion in a vulnerable way. And I'm like, great. Can you role play for me? Like how you expressed that. And immediately I can see the protection. Like you didn't express it in a vulnerable way. You expressed it in a really indirect way. You expressed it in a really guarded way. You expressed it in a way that does not feel like it leaves a lot of space for the other person to really do anything other than be like, okay, you think I suck. Yeah. Right. And I think that ties into that piece of desiring to co-regulate before we self-regulate, right? Which is the other thing that I always kind of highlight about my pursuers. And I don't know how to feel these emotions. They're so distressing for me. I'm in a more kind of secondary place. Um, I'm not able to go to that level of vulnerability. And then I just want you to regulate me. I just want you to help me with this. I just want, what what are you going to do to make me feel better, right? And so it's yep. this combination of a lack of access to primary and vulnerable emotions and the expectation that now you have to do something about it. Yeah, see our episode on co-regulation. Right. Yes. <laughs> So about now, people are probably wondering, okay, what do I do instead? Which actually is a question that pursuers love. This yes. is, it comes back to the yes. strength. Fine, they, what they do really, I do? Yes. They really do generally want to know. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, gosh. I think the first thing that comes up to me is something we started to talk about earlier and we're going to probably never stop talking about, which is the individuation piece and realizing that there is not just one right way. There are two right ways. There are two experiences here. And I have to believe that what it's like to be my partner is what it's like to be my partner and that that's different than it is for me. And that is a, that is something I have to use quite honestly, as a mantra, almost any time that Dustin and I get into any kind of cycle, I have to keep reminding myself to believe that he feels something very different than me and that his withdrawal is not because he wants to get away from me and because he doesn't love me. It's because he he doesn't know what he's feeling right now and he needs some time to figure that out. So it's this belief that we're different and especially in those moments of disconnection that what my partner interprets here is different than how I interpret this. Right. And that one of those things are not right. Correct. Yeah. I think this is like a whole can of worms. And I was going to say, we should record, we should record a whole episode on this. And then I realized we actually did. So boundaries, (laughs) right. That actually is something that pursuers generally need a lot more support and understanding the nuances instead of trying to use a boundary as a control strategy or as a punishment really learning how to look at what is in my control here. What are the things I can legitimately ask for? Like I can put a request out there, but my partner truly gets to say yes or no to any request. And if they say no, can we leave some space to understand, okay, why is it that you need to say no to this particular request right now? Um, And if that's the reality, like how do I take that back then? What am I going to do with that without just continuing continuing to demand that they need to be the one to meet this need in the way I want them to. Right. And even like kind of next to that is like to believe that you can regulate and meet your own needs. Yeah. Right. And that you don't have to just 
demand everything of your partner, that maybe there are some needs that you can meet yourself and or meet, you know, in other relationships. And I think that's a piece too. Like I advise my pursuers to look at their other relationships, their friendships, um, their family relationships. Is that something you need to develop more? Do you have a lot of friendships, but you don't practice being vulnerable with them a lot of the time? Like if I have more people outside of my partner who I can really reach out to and know that I can get some of these needs for validation and understanding and connection, it's not going to feel as high stakes in some of those more subtle moments if I know I can get those needs met in other places. Yeah, I received some similar feedback when I was newly married from a, a buddy of mine who's a pursuer as well and just struggling with my wife having different relational needs than me and just, you know, on random days like, hey, let's watch a movie or something. Like, mm, no, I don't feel like watching mm-hmm. a movie. And he, and he, I remember he said to me, he's like, bro, you need to be spending way more time outside the house. <laughs> like you need to go do things on your own, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Coulter, you said something early, earlier that I wanted to circle back to that I think is something that a pursuer needs to look at, and that is really trying to focus in on the things that your partner is doing right, mm. right? How are the ways that they are showing up and how are the ways that they are communicating and loving you? And maybe even track that in a note section in your phone yeah. to review it before you communicate next time because there is such a loss of, of attention toward the things that they are doing right. I love that one. And I do think that can be really grounding too, you know, like, because I even hear when I think of my individual clients who come in and there actually are so many sessions where they'll be like, here's this awesome thing my partner did. Like here's, we've been working in therapy and we had this great session together. Like I'm so impressed that my partner's been doing their own therapy work and then they'll come in and they're just like in a cycle and a recent trigger has happened. And all of a sudden it's like, all of that is washed. Yeah, exactly. And so I love that, like having a visual that we can really pull up and look back at our own writing. (laughs) Like these are things that have happened that I really do appreciate. I feel hesitant to bring this next one up and you two might need to put some more structure around it because it's kind of on the opposite end of things. It's something my wife and I did early in our marriage when we were having like the same argument over and over again, mostly about like her withdrawing in some way and then and me over pursuing. And so we came up with this system that was like, basically like I was allowed to not let it go X amount of times because I was always afraid we're never going to talk about it again. Mm-hmm. And so we wrote, we tore up uh, five scraps of paper and put one, two, three, four, five on each of them and then stuck them on the fridge. And it was like each time, like I'm going to press and be like, you need to tell me what's going on right now. I had to go get one of my numbers and rip it up. So it's like, (laughs) and then, but, and here's the thing is like, it was to show both of us, okay, how often is this actually Uh happening? And after a week I had, I think I had only used one of them and we didn't even, we kind of like tossed them all after that because we both realized like, oh, this isn't happening as often as we think. You know, for me to say, oh, she's not doing this as often as I think. And then for her to also recognize, oh, he's not, he's pushing me as often as I think. So I like the creativity there. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of the opposite of like keeping track of like when things go poorly. I do really agree with like the, the keeping track of, of what, goes well. And I think when pursuers are afraid to do that, it comes from that place of control of like, okay, well, like if I just tell them all the things are doing well, then they will recognize they don't need to try anymore. And then I won't get my needs met. And guess what? Shockingly, people respond a lot better to positive reinforcement than punishment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, just those little, I I think in like Gottman, they call it like deposits, like into someone's love bank, just like those little, I'm sure other, you know, therapists use it as well. Those little deposits over and over again. Hey, here's something that I appreciated about you. Yeah. They go a long ways. One more thing that I I really want to add for pursuers is to Work on your capacity to let your withdrawal partner have mm. uncomfortable feelings. Yes. Or time. Well, yeah, but I think particularly I see sometimes like there's this discomfort that if my partner feels guilty, if my partner feels sad or disappointed, that that all all of a sudden feels like it means something about me and I want to be able to bring my stuff to them without them feeling anything hard about that. And again, this is the individuation thing. Like we both need to be allowed to feel hard things and we don't need to rescue each other in that. If I can't tolerate that my partner feels guilty about something that maybe they should feel guilty 
guilty about. Like that's it, guilt is an appropriate emotion in a lot of circumstances. And if it's really because like, you told us we shouldn't feel guilty when we said we were guilty about the withdrawal, you shouldn't. I said I don't. <laughs> that's what I heard. <laughs> We should do a whole episode where we just like have a fight in real time. And <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's just go after each other. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, just we need to be able to tolerate our partner being in discomfort. And I, I think in our last episode, Coulter, you had named this idea of like, let them, right? Let them have their hard feelings. Let them have their disappointment. Don't try to take that away so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think the last thing that we want to visit here is what – our withdrawal partners would say are the maybe favorite things about us as pursuers or the strengths that we bring to our relationship. So what do you guys think your partners would say? I texted my wife because I knew we were going to ask this question. I said, what do you appreciate about me as a pursuer? And she said, can I text you soon? But it wouldn't be enough time. So I said, sure, because I still want to know. I didn't get anything. But I do know. So we just had our wedding anniversary uh, 11 days ago. And we watched the wedding video and heard our vows and stuff like that. And so she had said how she appreciates how I really push into deep and hard things. And I want to have those like hard, vulnerable conversations. She, I know that she would also say that she doesn't always appreciate it in the moment and it feels hard for her and she doesn't always like it, but she likes that I bring that to the table. Mm. I was just thinking back to one of the last letters that my partner wrote me. We have a tradition for every anniversary. Every anniversary, we write an email to each other. We have like a special email account that's just for sending um, anniversary or like Valentine's letters. And we, in the last year and a half, have become new parents. And one of the things that really stood out to me that he highlighted was how relationally focused I am. Um, And he was like, the way that you just like pour everything into your value of relationships is really apparent. And he was like, I love more than anything, like seeing that in you as a mom. But also like I've heard him name that too, just in other relationships. Like that's something that he really appreciates watching the ways that I will go above and beyond to connect with the important people in our lives. I love that email (laughs) idea. I think that's so sweet. It's such an art that we don't really always, you know, take up anymore Mm -hmm. to write letters to each other. So I just love that. We've got a book that I bought when um, I proposed to her that was like this old journal. It was blank. It was from 1910 I because I had to go find something like hipster and vintage-y. And when I proposed to her, I wrote her a letter in, in it and was like, hey, we can continue to fill this up throughout our marriage, we haven't had as much, you know, of a system around it, but just mm-hmm. like when someone wants to write something, they do. I love that. So I also texted Dustin and I have to just come clean here. I totally pursued his answer um, <laughs> because I have a short texter on my hands and I honestly don't know what the heck he was talking about. But he said, I appreciate you giving me attention when I'm the one that has trouble doing it. And I said, attention, question mark. I just want to get it right. <laughs> and so during this podcast, I want you to know what that mean? that just happened. Like, that sounds clear to me. Well, and I wanted to know, was it attention to like talk about things or was it attention to feel loved? And so he clarified and he said, to feel loved. And so um, I pursue, I guess I pursue uh, loving Dustin well. I believe that about you, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, that wraps up our conversation on pursuers and withdrawers. And if you're getting to the end of this episode and haven't listened to the withdrawer episode, I'd really encourage you to do so because odds are that you and your partner are opposite ones and you can really do some work on like, okay, how do I love them a little bit more if they identify as a withdrawer? If you are wanting to do some more work on this, we host a couples workshop called Hold Me Tight that comes up about four times a year. It's hosted by Kayla. It's a lot of fun. It's a two-day workshop that we have here in Phoenix, and you don't have to be local for it. People fly in for it since uh, Kayla is sought out all throughout the world, I believe. (laughs) And uh, we also have a course on attachment on our Thrive Membership portal, also taught by Kayla. So join us next week. We are going to be talking about social anxiety and whether or not you identify as someone who is a socially anxious person, I think it will be a helpful conversation for you or maybe to understand some other people who are a bit more socially anxious. So I hope you join us next week. Until next time.